This is Inviro News and I'm your host, Jewel. Today, I'm joined with Latifa Hamza, an engineer and researcher who studies water, sanitation, and waste management in various contexts. Think turning waste cocoa pods into fertilizers for better chocolate. Think making toilets work on clothes to no water. Wait, what? Think how can I drink this water that's been in this open bucket for three days? Well, don't drink it. Yep, Latifa has these answers. Hello, Latifa, and welcome. Hi, Julie. Thanks very much for having me on here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So, Latifa, water, water, water. It seems that everything that you do is about and around water. Can you tell us a bit how water is connected to climate change and why should we care about water in terms of climate change? Well, I think there are two related but slightly separate discussions to be had here around water and climate change. Firstly, our water consumption can contribute to climate change mm -hmm. by its carbon footprint, by the amount of water we use and so on. But also, obviously, climate change can exacerbate water problems. So those are the two slightly different angles that I would say I would like to talk about in the relation between water and climate change. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the first example, how does water contribute to climate change? Well, most things that we do these days have has a carbon footprint mm -hmm. and the water is, is no exception. So it costs energy to transport water, to clean water, to send water into your home. And it also costs energy to heat water if you want to use, let's say, warm water for for your shower or for your dishes and so on. In fact, I would say that the carbon footprint of water and our use of water is potentially even higher than you would think, right? Mm -hmm. The statistics seem to suggest that in the UK and the US, for example, let's take these two countries, using water in terms of treatment, in terms of heating, in terms of distribution, accounts to 5% of total greenhouse gas emissions in the economy. Okay, 5% is a lot. It is. But what's even more surprising, I think, you will find is that nearly 90% of that mm -hmm. is the emissions due to heating water. Uh -huh. So the emissions due to heating the water in your shower, the emissions due to heating water to use in your, in your laundry, in your dishwasher, and so on. This does not include space heating. Right? So that's just the emissions related to direct water use. I see. So I think even in that, that gives you a big opportunity to say, okay, if you were interested in cutting your carbon footprint in terms of water use or how much your water use contributes to your, your own personal carbon footprint, considering how much hot water you use, mm -hmm. both in terms of like when you use hot water, but for example, if you leave your tap running, uh, that could have a, a significant implication on your, on your overall water-related, at least, carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So if we just use the water without heating it up, why would that be contributing to climate change? If you use water without heating it, because you need to treat water to certain standards. Mm -hmm. So every, every country has a set of Clean Water Act standards or drinking water standards or environmental standards, both in terms of treating water before consumption, so before it gets to you, wherever your water source is, mm -hmm. but also treating water ideally 
after in terms of your wastewater treatment if you flush the toilet that gets treated or should get treated mm -hmm. before it gets discharged into into waterways that takes energy so for example if you were to have your wastewater treatment plant and you want to make sure that the nutrients basically the food in the water were fully digested and in this case the food that's in the water is in fact your excrement right your poop if you want to make sure that that's fully digested before it goes into the waterway so that it doesn't cause things like eutrophication Mm -hmm. So if you want to think about how your water is treated before it gets discharged, then you think it has to be treated so that excess nutrients that are in the water, that costs energy because you basically have to pump oxygen into the water to make sure that mm -hmm. all these nutrients are, are consumed before you can discharge the water because there are microbes in the water that, that eats these nutrients. That costs energy. Other processes like filtration or purification or any of those other processes, both before the water gets to you and after the water is treated once you're, once you're done with it, mm -hmm. that costs energy. So even in non-heated water use, there will be an attendant carbon footprint. I see. What about industrial water? Because I know that water is used in industrial processes, especially the chemistry industry, primarily for cooling down I think. So is that also part of the 5% of contributing water use emissions that you mentioned? Yeah, I think in the cooling industry, if your water is part of a closed loop, I'm not very clear about how water is used in sort of industrial purposes. That's not... They do prefer closed loops because it's yeah. better for the piping. It, it's better for the piping. And I would guess also that it's better if you can use your cold water in some ways as a cooling water loop, and then you use it as part of a heating water loop, you can actually really even out the sort of impact of that water. And in fact, at Stanford, the university at which I'm pursuing my PhD right now, we have a power plant on site that basically takes advantage of these um, cooling and heating loop systems to basically try to minimize as far as possible the greenhouse gas emissions from yeah. power generation that's necessary for campus operations. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you've mentioned the US and the UK, uh, Latifa, and it's very interesting because I would be thinking, especially in the US, in the South and in the West, that they also use water for beautification of land purposes, like watering lawns. And, and I think in many other countries in the world, this probably doesn't exist as much because other needs are, are more pressing than watering your lawn and making sure that you maintain the green in a quite arid area. So are the needs of the countries, let's say, the same, echoing concerns from the very recent COP26 summit meeting on climate change? Glasgow and thinking about many species of people from economically not as robust countries that are facing very, very adverse climate repercussions. Would you say that countries with different economic strength face the same issues? Well, I think the concerns for water-related concerns of what you would call high-income countries versus low-income countries or middle-income countries, which are sometimes grouped as lower, low, low and middle-income countries, are, are quite different, but I would also like to leave room in, in the discussion for stratifications or different groups, different socioeconomic groups within the same country. So even within a high income country, there are marginalized or underserved communities or, or rural communities where who don't have access to the same infrastructure or the same amenities as you would in more urban environments. So with that said, I think thinking about water and water use across these different populations, you could broadly divide it into two groups, sort of groups that 
have enough water to survive and have enough good quality and good and, and quantity of water to survive. And this is what I would call safely managed water. So water that is of good enough quality, that is available on demand, that is in your household, you know, like a, a piped or a tapped water supply or a well or something like that. Like these folks are fortunate enough, you and me included in this, obviously, to be able to concern ourselves with, you know, the carbon footprint of our water and how much water we use. But we are not mm-hmm. in a water stressed environment yet. Yeah. Given the uncertainties around climate change and, and increased extreme weather conditions and so on. This is not to say that it won't happen. We live in a relatively and increasingly uncertain climate and world. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we are quite fortunate in that sense. And in the other group, you would have people who are really struggling to live or struggling to have enough water to live. I would say in this category are people that I'm working with off the coast of Borneo in Malaysia, a community that often has to ration themselves to one liter of water per person per day. And to give you context around that, that's not even really enough water for you to drink. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you say most GPs are, will tell you you should drink two liters of water per day. Two, yeah. Yeah. These folks don't even have that. And that one liter that they have is rainwater harvested. So off their roofs, uh, whatever pathogens that come of that. Uh, and this sort of ties into the, can you drink the water that's been in the open bucket for three days? Actually, the... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can see. I can see the merit of the question now. That was a trick because we're trying to make slow sand filters in these buckets. So it's not quite just the open bucket that I had sold you at the beginning. Ah, okay. These folks, they're really struggling with the amount of water that they have. And other folks who live in areas where the groundwater levels are, are dropping due to overtapping of those uh, resources, sometimes that can lead to poorer quality water. Sometimes that can lead to no water. Sometimes that can lead to increased pathogens in the water supply. Yeah. And so all these things are, are things to consider for folks in that second group. And then the priority would be to try to be able to ensure that they can have access to sufficient quantity and quality of water that they need to survive as as all humans do. Yeah. Right. So I suppose two things to consider if I if I can summarize what you have said. Quality and quantity, these are the two things to consider. So quality is important in terms of what is in the water. Can it cause us to have diarrhea or maybe vomiting or even worse? And then the second thing would be how much of that would be made available uh, to us. And this is interesting because I'm also thinking of recent days where in my area it was raining and it was quite heavy rain. It lasted a few days. And for some reason, the water system in a fully integrated infrastructure place, the water was not available for several hours within the day, which made everything so much harder. But I suppose it, it does have to do with the mentality. Like you say, we are in the privileged part of the population where we do get water on demand we turn on the tap and there's the water and and we never think about it twice but it is interesting that what i think you're saying is that definitely in those areas where infrastructure is not as developed regardless of whether you're in a in an economically robust country or not the problems will exist and the and the both the quality and quantity of water are in question i would say yeah I think, I think that's a pretty good summary. Okay. What is interesting to me is that a lot of the climate change discussion is about climate justice and about climate being a right for people. And in our discussion, water is a whole topic on its own, and I understand that. But what is interesting to me is that would we 
categorize water as a human right in the sense that we would need to make sure that access to water is more than just about the economic growth of countries. It being a basic need, would we then move on to call sanitation, for example, a basic need to call other types of use of water a basic need? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, for water, the UN guideline is that each person should have access to 50 to between 50 to 100 liters of water per person per day mm-hmm. to have enough water for drinking, for cooking, for showering, for hygiene. I mean, think about it in this COVID era where hand washing is so important. Mm-hmm. If you don't have enough water, you're already at, at a significant disadvantage mm-hmm. in, in that respect. I had never thought about this. And the costs for water, they suggest in order to not be an undue burden on, on households or individuals is for the water to not cost more than 3% of your household income. So your water needs should broadly fall within that range for it to be classified as affordable water. And I, I think most people would be would agree that water is a human right because everyone needs, needs water to survive. Mm-hmm. I think equally sanitation is, although viewed as less immediately fundamental, because you can you can arguably live without sanitation where you whereas you absolutely cannot live without water. Mm-hmm. The interesting he- thing here is that sanitation is important to the community, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the extent to which waterborne diseases can cause problems. So in the case of, for example, water, if you say, okay, I drink water, me drinking that water has no immediate benefit to you, right? Yeah. But if you say I use a toilet and I have diarrhea, but I'm using the toilet and that toilet processes my waste efficiently, it immediately protects my community. Yeah. And so in poorer environments or in any environment, if you have a robust sanitation system, you will protect the whole community from things like cholera, for example, of, of which, for example, when there was uh, the earthquakes in Haiti, there were outbreaks of cholera. Mm-hmm. Even in the UK now, they say, you know, some of the rivers have cholera in it because of inadequately treated wastewater. Yeah. And, and this is the whole point, because there are a lot of what they call oral fecal transmission I see. Uh, of disease where if you have diarrhea and anything waterborne diseases in your, in your poop and then it enters the water stream and that's not well treated and you ingest it again then more people get sick I see so are we drinking poop water then if it's not if it's not well treated you, you may well be I mean <laughs> I, I, I don't know about your region specifically but you know <laughs> it's very possible right I suppose I'm asking because at the introduction you said running toilet with close to no water, which is something that they cannot quite wrap their, uh, my head around, primarily because all the types of sanitation that I know involve a flash of water coming and taking away everything. And to be honest with you, I have no idea what happens after that. And I have never thought about it until until you mentioned it, to be honest. I hadn't thought about it. So what's the plan there? How can we have toilets without water? Well, so if you look at the, I guess, classic conception of a toilet in, I guess, the Western imagination, you would have a toilet bowl with the flush of water, like you say, and it would go into a sewer. Mm-hmm. And you need this water because you need the water to basically move everything a lot, a lot right? Like if you don't, mm-hmm. if you don't have the water, nothing flows and you can't get it to, to your to your wastewater treatment plant. Mm-hmm. But it is ultimately a pretty inefficient use of water because you're flushing treated potable drinking water down the toilet. And if you think about it, each toilet flush is about 11 liters of water. Mm-hmm. And each person would go to the toilet, say, six or seven times a day on average. So you're immediately flushing 60, 70 liters of perfectly good drinking water, literally down the toilet every day. <laughs> <laughs> 
and interesting <laughs> and i mean the history of this as you know goes back centuries from when you were trying to take the waste out of city walls and so on indeed yeah but ultimately if you don't if you have a toilet system that's different from your sewer network you might not need as much water mm-hmm. and i say this because in many other parts of the world you, instead of using sewers you would use things like septic tanks Mm-hmm. which are sort of on-site, right? Mm-hmm. A septic tank is on-site, a latrine is on-site. These are all types of on-site sanitation. And in fact, in 2020, for the first time, the number of people who used on-site sanitation was greater in the world than the number of people who use sewers as their main form of sanitation. Really? Yes. And when I say this, I mean that people who had access to safely managed sanitation. So we're not including the people who are openly defecating or the people who don't have treated sanitation, but we're talking about the people who have access to safely managed sanitation. Yeah. For the first time in 2020, according to the UN, the number of people who used on-site sanitation was greater than the number who used sewers. Mm-hmm. Is that a good thing? I think so, because like you say, if you use on-site sanitation, you don't have this need to transport things greater distances, uh, which requires that water to flow. In fact, it's cheaper to install and cheaper to operate because you don't need as much infrastructure laid down. Mm-hmm. It's easier to build, it's easier to maintain. And that's why in lower middle income countries, there is an increasing preference for on-site sanitation solutions. It's also very good in less densely populated environments, mm-hmm. because obviously with capital cost of infrastructure if you need to put in a a big expensive line you need to have enough people to divide that cost between in order for it to make economic sense Mm -hmm. whereas if you have a cheaper option in a less dense setting the economics work out much much faster and much much Mm -hmm. more efficiently for for people can i ask a basic question and and i'm sorry for asking this but I, i really don't know so how does a septic tank work And I ask this because sometimes I've been in areas where they don't have the central sewing system, like you mentioned, but then the septic tank still, you know, you still need to flush water to get everything into the tank. So how is that? Yeah. How can that be a better measure when you have what you call on-site sanitation? A septic tank system doesn't necessarily use less water than a sewer system, especially not if it's connected to a conventional Mm -hmm. toilet, right? If it's connected to a conventional toilet that flushes however many gallons, then it will still have to take on however many gallons. But how a septic tank typically works, there's a a part where things settle, and then there's another... I mean, there there are various ways in which septic tanks are, are, are built. There are various sort of designs for septic tanks. But in general, you'll have sort of a settling component where you can let all the solids and, and stuff settle. Oh, I see. Uh, and that becomes sludge that eventually has to get pumped out and taken away. Mm-hmm. There's also an, another part, basically two chambers. And at some point it's designed to hold this water or the, your waste for a certain amount of time after which it's deemed safe enough to sort of discharge at least the liquid components that have not settled. So that you mean in the soil? Into the soil. And that's what they call a leach field uh-huh. of your septic tank. Septic tanks are not appropriate in all environments because if you leach into your aqu- your aquifer, which is your source of drinking water, that's also no good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you have to have different considerations for where you would, you know, how big your leach field is, where your water sources would be, what you're, mm. what else you're doing on, on that land. Uh, if it's flood prone, how do you make sure that, you know, if, if it floods, your, your septic tank system is not going to come out of the ground and then you're going to literally have contaminated water and, and yeah. untreated waste everywhere. There are different solutions, but that's fundamentally how a septic tank works. A latrine can get by with less water if you do sort of a, a small pore flush system. And there are various designs for this. And that's sort of how you try to minimize the water use. There are a whole series of, of toilet projects that are part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations mm-hmm. and reinvent the toilet challenge that seek to 
have toilets that are able to run without reliable connections to mm-hmm. water, without reliable connections to electricity. And one of my one of my research projects is working on such a toilet. So which is why we're trying to make a toilet work on nearly no water. Mm. Okay, I see. I think I understand that. So basically a septic tank is already doing some separation of what comes through like wastewater, wet wastewater. And it also helps with then the redistribution of this waste in more, I want to say recyclable ways, <laughs> I suppose. Is that, would that be correct? Would that be accurate enough? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess so, because it sort of tries to, I guess it sort of tries to, you treat your sludge, right? Yeah. So you take the sludge and you take, take that away. And it, it's sort of, in most cases, made a determination of how good quality water needs to be to be discharged in, in this particular location, having been held for however long and assuming a sort of treatment percentage or however much, right? So there, are, it, it's, it's certainly not treated to drinking water standards. Even your water that's out of your wastewater treatment plant that, that flows into the river, you wouldn't want to drink that. No. So you know, we're all as engineers, we're always sort of optimizing for as good as possible, for as cheap as possible, or as quick as possible. And so that's part mm-hmm. of the calculation here. Okay, I think this is a wrap up, Nadifa. A lot of poop talk today. Very interesting. <laughs> I did not expect this in the podcast. So thank you for bringing this novelty for everybody that, that listens to the podcast and myself for, for doing it. That was very interesting. I do have one last question. What are our thoughts about bottling water? I will admit and confess bias here. I hate bottled water as a concept. I believe it's a waste of materials and definitely a um, way to pollute the planet, an effective way to pollute the planet. But now that they have admitted bias, please go ahead and tell us what you think and, you know, no strings attached. (laughs) Now I have to stay on your good side. (laughs) I mean, I think in general, it even the water that comes out of our tap has a carbon footprint. It is, it is much smaller than the carbon footprint of bottled water. Mm-hmm. And you know the extent to which this impact is greater or smaller depends on many things, including where your water comes from and so on. Mm-hmm. So in any case, I would similarly to you be an advocate of drinking non-bottled or tap or piped water wherever possible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for some communities where the water is too contaminated and they have to rely on bottled water or trucked water, this is an entirely different conversation. I agree. But I think even in the case of bottled water or water in general, there is this question of who who is entitled to the water? Because all our resources come from somewhere, right? And in the case of, if you want to say, okay, bottled water to, as an example, and we look at, at Canada as a place where a lot of water is bottled, a lot of that water comes from First Nations land, which are their indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And companies like Nestle and Dasani and so on bottle that water and pay a fee to the government to bottle that water, but in effect pay no fee to the First Nations people who live in that land, even though the people who live on that land are consequently left with insufficient water. And in fact, they are now re- having to rely on going to fill water elsewhere because their water supplies that are left are contaminated. And to be clear, these companies have done nothing illegal. Mm-hmm. There are permits in place and, and so on, but, but this is sort of unintended consequence of unplanned consequence of the sort of current water industry as we see it. And there can be this these impacts of what we consume on people that we don't see. And if we don't really know where stuff comes from and like what the real impact of that. Are. And similarly with water, like the damming of water in Malaysia, there, there have been dams built as there have been 
you know, in the US and, and around the world to guarantee water supply, to get, guarantee hydropower and so on. And in Malaysia, I've worked in the community in Sarawak, which is also on Borneo, where to try to uh, guarantee the water supply to the main city in the state called Kuching, they would flood the ancestral land and the territories of the indigenous people there. So you can have better water security for some at the cost of the culture and the heritage and the history of others. And in the US, you'll have the same thing where the dams are really killing the salmon downstream in the river because they're diverting that much water and this is really impacting the... Mm-hmm. It's both pushing several species of, of salmon to extinction across the, the US West, but it's also really impacting on the way of life of various uh, indigenous tribes. Yeah, Like the Yuraku, I think statistically used to be able to eat something like a pound of salmon a day and now they're eating five pounds of salmon per year that they can't even afford to buy themselves. Oh, wow. So all these sort of impacts that we don't usually think of yeah no and as governments try to guarantee water security the increasing cost of that on various marginalized groups and so on are are not necessarily fully known to the general public i see so in favor of the many the few may get like the short end of the stick indeed or or you will have to fight very hard to maintain your rights Yeah, that makes sense. Very interesting conversation. So if I want to summarize a bit what you have shared with us today, I think the takeaway messages from today's chat are that water affects climate change in many ways that we haven't thought of. One is the heating and cooling of water. And if this isn't effective in terms of using the cooled water to cool something down and then this warmed up water then can be used for heating something up. If it isn't a circular system, let's say, then there is a lot of waste of energy there. Therefore, the consumption of energy takes us back to the previous podcast where energy is discussed with um, Agota. And, And please listen to that. And then there is also the sanitation part that is also extremely important. The flushing down the toilet doesn't mean that this disappears from our lives. There are a lot of different processes that start from that moment onwards that we are not aware of. And I think I should thank you for bringing this up as an issue because I think part of the whole issue of of climate change is that a lot of our actions do have impact, like considerable impact on the changes that we see in the climate, the weather, the microclimates per region, but we don't necessarily connect these actions to that change. And until we do, we will just perpetuate something. We will continue doing something that we have always traditionally been doing and we will not really think about it. Very interesting conversations. I especially want to thank you for bringing up the rights of people in terms of who owns that water, who has access and the right to that water, and how sometimes political decisions, even for the greater good of the population, do stand in the way of small parts of the population that may be greatly affected by the decision for the many. I think in terms of social justice, which is part of the climate justice narrative, it is important that we acknowledge that it would not be ethical to be affecting small communities in favor of larger communities. And personally, for me, I will take it one step further and say humans are not the only species on the planet and we shouldn't only be caring about our well-being. I think we should be caring about the well-being 
of all the species because this is a system of balance. If somewhere there is imbalance, the rest of the system is also going to tip to different directions that we don't know of. Thank you very much. I hope I got everything. Did I get everything? I'm sure we could have enough material for three more podcasts. <laughs> yes, I think that was a great Yes. <laughs> so basically you're coming back. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully if you'll have me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anytime. I mean, we never talked about the cocoa pods, which is very, very interesting. So I think uh, I think we'll definitely have uh, opportunities for more discussions in the future. And so um, with this, I will say thank you very much for coming and thank you very much for sharing your science with us. It makes a lot of things, I think, very clear and interesting. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Envirenews podcast is produced by me, Enviro Jewel. Please subscribe and spread the word. You can find me on Twitter at Jewel underscore crash underscore axe. The music clip is Vitoro, provided by Blue Dot Session under retribution license. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.